Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, an episode that first aired in April of 2011. It's an episode we call Music. hello kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and that up top was i think the strangest opening theme that has ever been donated to us. That was Sloth Bear with a song called Oxus Armlets, and I have no idea what that means. This is Worm Burner behind me now, and today's episode is all about music. Uh, stories inspired by music or uh, the lifestyle from which music is created. 
We're going to start with a very good friend of mine, crazy man, Mr. Eric Andre. Now, we did a show in Los Angeles recently where the theme was rock and roll. And Eric felt that this little story here, this small anecdote, really, uh, expresses the, the essence of rock and roll. We call this one Stigmata. That's story I want to talk about. It's kind of rock and roll. I was, uh, one time I was in high school, I used to do this uh, kind of party trick in high school where I would slam my head against the locker because it was like thin metal. It wouldn't hurt, but it sounded really loud and painful and I was super into Chris Farley. So anytime like, anytime like a girl would walk by, I would just go, oh God, I'm so stupid, 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 stupid. It'd be like, dang, 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 dang. And uh, one time I had the bright idea. My friend Brooke was walking into the English building and I was like, I'm gonna do it to the don't break in case, only break in case of emergency fire hose thing. Not thinking that that's glass, not metal. I was like, I'm a fucking genius. I've been smoking weed since I was 12 years old. I'm full of good ideas. (laughs) And so my friend Brooke's walking in and I go, Brooke, check this out. And I just went, Boom! And like, I expect to like go back because that's what metal does, but my head just keeps going through the glass. And I'm like, oh, what happened? And I lean back and two shards of glass like cut both centers of my hand. So my forehead's bleeding, the centers of my hand are both bleeding. And I just turned to Brooke and I went, stigmata! Stigmata! So to her, I just look like Gigi Allen, just the most fucking insane maniac like check this out boom i'm jesus it's 11 30 in the morning see you in chemistry thank you guys so much enjoy the rest of the show So in 1999, I auditioned to be a guitarist for an artist who was working on Sony Records, a job that I didn't get because I wasn't good looking enough, so they told me. But while I was there, I met this guy named Don DeVito, he's one of the heads of Sony at the time, and he really liked me, he liked my playing, and he said he would try to hook me up with something else in the future. So about two weeks later, I got a phone call from Sony Records, and a lady asked me if I'd be interested in auditioning for Puff Daddy. For real? Puff Daddy was putting together a rock band, not a hip-hop band. What? And was looking for uh, some new musicians in the New York area. I said I can do it, but I'd have to do it early in the morning, because the day that they wanted me to audition, I had a gig in New Jersey. They said, that's fine, we can have you come in at 10 o'clock in the morning. I said, all right, now who is this for again? They said, it's, it's for Puff Daddy. In 1999, Puff Daddy was pretty hot shit. Yeah. I don't like his music, I did like his music then. Come on, man. But um, considering that I was working as an office assistant and living with my dad, I was into the idea of making a lot of money playing music. So that night, I went home and I saw some of the stuff that Puff Daddy was doing. At the time, he had just put out that song with Jimmy Page, which was just rapping over cashmere. And you just know that Puff Daddy, you know, wasn't a big Zeppelin fan, you know, he was just like, oh, I heard this on the radio and then I'm gonna rap over it.
I think it's one thing to want to form a rock band inspired by Jimmy Page. You know, I think a lot of people have done that. I think it's another thing when you're inspired to form a rock band when you've already worked with Jimmy Page. <laughs> and I think it's another if uh, you want other people to form a rock band because you have worked with Jimmy Page. So, the next morning, I got there early and no one was there <laughs> except for these two people. One of them was, um, I guess I'd have to call him a black dwarf who was dressed like Jimi Hendrix. He was wearing bell bottoms, he had a puka shell, he had huge uh, afro quasi dreadlocks, uh, bare feet, was playing guitar, smoking a joint, and drinking a uh, Heineken. And the other person there was his hot Japanese girlfriend who was wearing five inch heels and a micro mini and was carrying his beer. So it was just us and um, I was like, oh, hey, are you here for the puffy thing? And he responded to me without really saying anything. He just kind of looked at me, cocked his head, pursed his lips and was like, hmm. And I said, oh, cool, uh, me too. Do you play guitar? And he went, hmm. I was like, oh, great, this is, <laughs> this is gonna be fun. Meanwhile, we were waiting for uh, whoever to show for, for this audition. 20 minutes later, Puffy's assistant, who was uh, a nebbish little man named Ben G, came in and said, uh, hey guys, uh, so excited that you're here. Uh, Puffy's not gonna be here, and unfortunately, the drummer that we wanted to come can't be here either, so um, I'm just gonna sit behind the drums, and you know, I can't play drums, but I can keep a beat so you guys can jam, which is, you know, not what you wanna hear when you're <laughs> playing music. So uh, we get into the room, we set up our shit, and this guy, who I'll, I'll call Jimmy, he has this full arsenal of all these vintage guitar pedals. And um, unsurprisingly, he's having trouble getting a sound out of it because he's forgetting to plug them in because he's too busy smoking his joint. I have to go and, and plug in his equipment and set, and set it up. And we start playing, and Ben on the drums is going boom, bap, boom, bap. But he's not really a drummer, so it sounds like, you know, and it's, it was, there was nothing there. And meanwhile, Jimmy finally got his volume working. So Ben asked us, hey, he's like, you guys ready to play? And I said, sure, what do you want to play? And then he asked us if um, we know any songs. So I said, well, yeah, sure, <laughs> I know lots of songs. And he said, well, how about you, uh, Jimmy? Do you know any songs? And Jimmy says, um, let's just jam, man. <laughs> so Ben is like, well, no, let's, let's actually do something. How about you guys play the, um, that Puff Daddy song, the one from Godzilla? And I said, oh, you mean Cashmere? And Ben says, no, the one with the guitar guy. Like, that's Jimmy Page. So <laughs> I said, oh, it's called Cashmere. And uh, he's like, well, I, I don't know that. So Cashmere is not the easiest song to play. And I wind up playing my bass and his guitar at the same time while he just stands there smoking a joint. And he's happy, he's very happy. And he's looking at me, he's digging it. You know, he's looking like, yeah, good job. <laughs> I say, is that cool, Ben? And Ben says, yeah, whatever you want to play. And immediately kicks into Jimmy, to say that he was the worst guitarist I've ever heard would be an understatement. 
It, it was the most pathetic sound I've ever heard, and, and at the time I was 22 years old, I thought I was 11 years old again. I, I'm noticing that he's really, really out of tune, and I can tell this because I see where his hands are moving on the fretboard, and I try to play the same notes, so we sort of sound like we're locked up, and it, uh, it's not working. So I, I stop the song, and I say, hey man, um, I think your B-string is a little out of tune. He played it, and he went, it's cool, man. And I said, uh, well, actually, no, it's really flat. He said, uh, whatever, man, it's not out of tune, but I'll tune it to make you feel better. So he starts trying to tune his guitar, but he's so high that he starts tuning the wrong string. And I go, wait, 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 hold on a second, I'll, I'll do it. So I'm tuning this guy's guitar. With one hand, he's got his beer, and the other hand, he's got his joint. And he's just standing there while I'm tuning this guy's guitar. I felt like I was like a mom, like cutting up her kid's food. We, uh, we start to play something else, and, and Ben just keeps going, going At that point, I noticed that it's time for me to go to my gig, and, and I say, well, listen guys, I gotta go, so take care. I went to my gig, then I went home, and I was um, kind of bummed, because I felt like, wow, this is my chance to audition for a major label artist, and you know, I didn't blow it, but the situation sucked. So I call him up. I said, listen, you know, I, I would love another chance to audition. Obviously, you know, you guys wanted me to audition and um, I would like a chance to audition with some real musicians. And the lady I was talking to said, okay, um, are you white? And uh, I said, yeah, I was white when I met Don, who, who recommended me, and I still am. And she said, we're not looking for anyone white. And she hangs up the phone. And that was, and that was it. You are bugging the fuck out. instruments. Listen to these different kinds of drums. One, two, three. Bass. This is Risk. That was Ruckus Roboticus with a song called A Child's Introduction to Drums. And this is MWD Behind Me Now. The story we just heard, the second story we heard, was from Jesse Krakow, a good friend of ours who's done some music for the show. And some of that amazing guitar work, some of that awful guitar work and amazing guitar work that you heard was from John Sonderricker. Next up, we have a very, very dear friend of mine going way back. This is the writer Smith Galtney with a story we call Starfucker.
this was back in 2001. Um, I've been assigned a story by GQ to um, write a feature about Lucinda Williams. You know, at the time, she was like just about the coolest thing. But I had never really gotten the assignments that were like, okay, well, we're going to fly you to Nashville and you're going to go pick Lucinda Williams up at her house and hang out with her for the night. And I was still drinking at this point, and um, it was a couple months before I'd, I'd kind of given that stuff up. And, and I think that this trip might have had something to do with that. <laughs> so the big night comes the next night. And I pull up, and, and she lives in this nice, like, little, like, kind of condo. I'm just sitting there kind of tap, tap, tapping on the screen door, and then there's, like, Winston Williams, like, poking her head, like, you know, down, like, from outside of the kitchen, like, hey, and she comes and opens the door, and I, she welcomes me into her house. The thing about being around famous people sometimes is that, like, the most mundane boring ass like thing like you know she welcomed me I, st I was standing on like her doormat and I'm just like this is fucking awesome um she's like would you like to have some red wine and um I'm like would I like to have some fucking red wine with Lucinda Williams you know like of course yes I believe the answer would be fucking yes <laughs> We sit down, she tells me that she had been to the dentist. I'm like, oh my God, she went to the fucking dentist, you know? And she's telling me. Because you know why? She, I think she likes me. She wouldn't tell, I'm not sure if she'd just tell anybody who came in her house tonight. But as we continued to drink wine and talk and shoot the shit for like the next hour or so, we, we basically split a bottle of red wine. But like I noticed that like it's sometimes like she'd laugh and like bits of like filling from like, or, or like, you know, the stuff would like come into her wine glass and then she'd look at me like, oh, I'm sorry. And I, you know, if I had, if this had been me being introduced to like anyone, like, oh, hi, how are you? Welcome into my home. And then they started spitting out bits of their dental work into their, <laughs> into their wine glass. I would be like, oh my God, do I really want to like spend the rest of this evening like with somebody? But the, here I am, I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, it's fucking Lucinda Williams. And she is like just pieces of her are just coming out into her wine glass. This is awesome. We go to a restaurant in Nashville and we meet up with a friend of hers. I probably shouldn't even mention the guy's name because he was a total dill hole. <laughs> There's just something about the way that he's acting. You can just tell that this guy is just like a yes man to like the nth degree. She has like one little kind of like, mm, mm, you know, mm, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't like this. Can I have something else? And just kept saying, not this, not this, more wine. And we get into this, back into her car, and this time the British photographer drives because we just really, you know, Lucinda is really now in no position to be, like, behind the wheel. And she's in the back seat, like, putting on, like, lipstick. And she's, like, smearing on all of this, like, red lipstick. And she's not big on blotting. <laughs> and um, while the guy's driving... I'm like to kind of half talking to him and she lunges forward into the front seat and she like gets her hands all over him and like she's just like the GQ rider is G cute. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my god, and then she just totally starts to like get her face up into like 
you know, my, mine. And I was a few months shy of my 30th birthday. I'm a gay man. It was like suddenly in this one little moment, I was like, Jesus Christ. I'm like, you know, I, the, the thought kind of dawned on me at some point that like, you know, I'm about to turn 30 and I've never had sex with a woman. Like, maybe like if I was going to give it a shot, I mean... With, why not with Lucinda Williams? I mean, that would be a hell of a story to tell, right? I mean, and right then she sort of slinks back into the back seat, and the driver, like, looks at me, you know, the British photographer looks at me and goes, like, you've got, like, you know, he's pointing to my, you know, around his mouth, like, looking at me like, oh, my God, you've got, like, lipstick, like, all over your face. And I look at him, and he's got, like, red lipstick, like, all over his face and I'm just like oh my god we've both been marked by Lucinda <laughs> and she's in the back and she's just like getting on drunk and she's like he's gonna write whatever about me but and, and you know like as if she's kind of half nervous about it like just a typical kind of like drunk sort of high school girl being like oh my god like there's the writer for the school newspaper and I'm totally wasted and I'm homecoming queen but you know what fuck it I don't care <laughs> We end up at this club called the Exit Inn. Now, there was this woman named Rosie Flores. She's very sassy and she plays rockabilly. And like, I didn't have any albums by her, but I knew of her. And I was just like, again, like, fuck, it's Rosie fucking Flores. This band is playing called the Legendary Shack Shakers. And um, Lucinda Williams and Rosie Flores and I like went backstage to go meet the lead singer of the Legendary Shack Shakers. And, um, this guy was being introduced to Lucinda Williams, and she had, like, flopped down, like, onto a bench. And she half kind of looked up, like, hi, nice to meet you. And I was like, like, oh, my God, am I going to write about this? Am I going to talk about, like, Lucinda Williams could barely, like, get her hand up? What's my responsibility here? What do I tell? What do I don't? Rosie Flores walks us out to her car, and she gives, like, Lucinda a gift, and... She's just kind of like, and I, I remember kept on thinking, like, Rosie Flores is like a friend with this person, like, does she see Lucinda like this all of the time? And suddenly I realized, I was like, look, I mean, I knew I had a drinking problem at the time, you know. Suddenly I had, like, all these images of, like, Janis Joplin, and I'm like, no one can really talk to her and tell her that she can't do this or anything. Part of me started to, like, kind of see whether people could actually just look at her and be like, oh, well, this is Lucinda Williams. She's just drunk and everything. But or versus like someone actually being like, Lucinda, you know, maybe we should talk about your drinking or something. And then when we got to her house, me and this British photographer kind of helped her out of the car and she sort of like lumbered into her, like, you know, back into her house. She just sort of crashed on her couch and like just totally passed out. And I shook hands with everybody, and then I hopped into the car, and I drove, and I was, like, halfway home, and I was like, shit, I forgot my fucking backpack. And so I drove back and kind of knocked on the door. The British photographer answered the door, and I was like, I forgot my backpack, I'm sorry. And so I went in, and she was still in, like, the same spot, just, like, passed out on the couch. And he was just standing there, just kind of, like, wandering around. Like, maybe he was looking after her or something, but it was, like, my last image of the night of, like, Lucinda Williams was, like, her just, like, seated on the on the couch and and this sort of stranger, you know, just kind of, like, wandering around, like, you know, kind of in sort of, like, a satellite orbit kind of around her. And as I left, I was like, that was there was just something about the image that just seemed a little creepy. I went home and 
and I didn't write the story as I saw it or as it happened. Um, I was I was a raging alcoholic um, when I wrote this story, and I basically realized that if I wrote the story as I saw it, that um, no one was going to think I was an alcoholic, you know. But everyone, and it was just going to be obvious that like this is one woman who like had a crazy night, and it was just going to make her look like a big old drunk. And I decided that I wasn't very comfortable with that kind of say throwing stones when I lived in such a glass house myself. And so um, I kind of whitewashed the story. I had actually checked in with her before the piece came out, and I called her directly because now I had her. Her phone. I had her cell phone. So I called her and I said, I, I just need to make sure I'm, I'm tight on this and everything. And, and, and I was like, yeah. And, and I was heading to Jazz Fest in New Orleans and she was going to be playing there. And I was like, yeah, I'm coming down for Jazz Fest. She's like, oh, great. Well, give me a call. And like I hung up the phone and thinking like, Lucinda and I, we're going to be like friends forever. I'm going to be able to tell everybody and anyone that like, you know, oh, I'm just going to be hanging out with Lucinda today. You know, maybe I'll call you next week. When I arrive, I call her cell phone, and I'm like, Hey, Lucinda Smith from GQ. Every time I, like, introduce myself, I'm like, It's Smith from GQ, because I'm, like, totally paranoid that she's going to completely have forgotten me forever. And I never hear from her. I never hear from her. The day that she plays at Jazz Fest, I'm, like, sitting back about a mile away from the stage amidst all of the beer-drinking throngs, and I'm just looking at them, kind of waving my hand, like, Lucinda, it's, it's me, you know? <laughs> I mean, not technically waving my hand, but in my head, I'm just looking at her singing these songs, and I'm like, why didn't you call me? I, you said you'd call me. Like, I, I called you just like you said. You said call me, you know? totally just not, you know, she sings some song about being lonely, and I, in my head I'm like, you're not lonely. If you were lonely, you would have called me, you know? <laughs> and I'm just like, everything that she sings about, like, you know, a heart, I'm like, you don't have a heart. You didn't call me, you fucking bitch. So I go back to New York, and it's like a few weeks later, and she has like a big show at Roseland. Like it's like it's happening like the weekend that Essence, this her new album is coming out, and everything. And like I've publicist calls me, and she's like, "Yeah, she, Lucinda's gonna have a meet and greet after the show. So you know, here's your tickets. You can watch the show from the VIP area." And I'm like, "Of course I will, because Lucinda and I are fucking tight, okay?" <laughs> and so after the show. For anybody who's ever been to a meet and greet, it's basically like a petting zoo. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh my god, hey, it's me, I wrote that little piece. And the person just keeps being wheeled by like, yeah, it was a great piece, thank you so much. And like, everyone's like, oh my god, Lucinda and I are so tight. I'm, I'm sitting there for an hour, and then she finishes it, and then she looks at me, and then like, I come up to her and I kind of smile. I'm like, hey, Lucinda, it's Smith from GQ, you know, because I'm still... And she's just kind of looking at me like while somebody comes up to her and starts to, like, pull her away, like, we've really got to go, we've really got to get going. And I'm like, well, I don't want to, like, keep you up or anything, you know. Did you ever get to see the piece? And she just kind of goes, yeah. And then, like, they basically, like, and I'm like, well, I don't want to hold you up, just keep going. And then they, like, whisked her off. And I just sat there alone in this room, and I was like, I am such an idiot. As, like, they whisked her away, and I realized I had basically wasted, like, an hour and a half of my night trying to still cling to this idea that she was going to know who I was. I suddenly realized that, like, not only does she not remember who I was after spending all that time with me, 
there was probably no fucking way that she was even going to come close to reading that article. I mean, she didn't, she really didn't give a shit. At the end of the whole experience, I basically whitewashed what would have been a great story for nobody's benefit, you know, and, and some sort of effort to kind of like protect her. But all I ended up doing was kind of cheating myself. It would have been a lot cooler. It would have been a lot more kick-ass and rock and roll if I had just kind of wrote the story as I saw it. enslaved the youth of this generation. Another one bites the dust. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. Satan's satanic takeover of our youth through rock music. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. All rock music is dangerous. I want to tell you that today, even some of the mellow stuff that doesn't sound like it has anything in it that could be deceptive or even misleading. I started asking God, can you show me how he's doing it? I wanted to have proof positive. Now, Queen has a song called Another One Bites the Dust. We have the same reaction the first service. The kids went, oh no, not Queen. Not Another One Bites the Dust. Another One Bites the Dust. All rock music is dangerous. Another One Bites the Dust. I want you to know today that Satan has planted his lyrics in the music, and some of it is subliminal. If that means it's down at low decibel levels where you wouldn't hear it audibly as you play the music at the speed that you, or the high... A little less than a year ago, my friends asked me to play their comedy show and play Lady Gaga's Bad Romance on the Piccolo, which I said yes to, but immediately panicked at the idea of playing in front of a crowd to convey how radical a feeling this was. I'd probably have to start all the way at the beginning. 
I was once a little boy, you were once a little girl, hey, hey. At seven years old, I told my mother that I wanted to play the flute, and she was kind of like, all right, you know. Uh, on my first lesson, I remember I picked up the flute, and it fit in my hands, and it felt so familiar, like I'd held it before, and when I played, I was good. I got the impression that I was talented. I could see when I played, my teacher would kind of, her eyebrows would kind of raise every time that I played, and she would after my lessons, pull my mom aside, and I couldn't hear what she was saying, but I kind of could tell that she was saying, like, you're going to want her to quit gymnastics, and this isn't going to be so temporary. I started playing really seriously all the time, and I, I loved it. It presented me with some really great opportunities. I remember at 12 years old, I got the chance to play Handel's Messiah with some professional adult musicians, and it was nuts. I mean, I was on stage with tons of big musicians, bigger people, much bigger than I was playing in front of me. And it was literally live surround sound. I remember it was the first time I thought, oh, this is what it feels like to have the hair on the back of your neck stands up. Like That's what people are talking about. Your body literally buzzes. You have the, you know, the, the frequency being amplified. It's sound just actually gives you a physical reaction that you can't you don't actually know until you're really feeling it. And to top it all off, I got handed a check for $80 for like three hours of work. And I thought, you know, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm 12 years old and I'm getting paid $80, you know, for three hours of work. By the time I'm 20, I'm going to be making bank. Uh, I rule. I, I'm amazing. You know, this is, this is my career. That's kind of how I thought most of the time, you know, like I am music. Music is who I am. Uh, although there was one time around that age, I heard this girl play Mimi, who was a couple years older than I was, um, but she was an actual flute prodigy. I remember hearing her and having this experience, like watching people congregate around her and kind of ooh and ah over her and thinking like, that's what people do for me, but they're doing it for her and she's better than I am. And having this realization that it doesn't matter how, how good I am, there's always going to be someone who's better, which to a 12-year-old who has been told you're going to play at Carnegie Hall, you're awesome, you haven't met your match yet, was a pretty jarring feeling. It didn't take the passion out of my music. I, I was definitely in love with playing. I had great experiences. I got a chance to go to this conference upstate in New York with lots of other young, talented musicians from New York. And it was this total nerd fest. And we all just got a chance to play music together and bond. And I remember on the bus ride back six hours to New York City, I met this girl, Stephanie, and we talked for forever in a way that I, I had never spoken to someone before. We talked about 
just the life of a performer and someone who has so much, so much passion at such a young age and how that's so rare. You know, most kids are playing soccer or throwing snowballs and we were devoting hours and hours and hours to produce something that most adults would kind of think you're, you're too young to try and create. You know, you're not old enough to have these experiences, but we knew that this was what we wanted and we had this this passion and this dedication and I remember thinking like oh my god she gets me you know which was a feeling that I didn't have in in high school I thought that day on that bus you know this is this is my career this is what I'm going to be I'm going to be a musician these are my people you know by senior year of high school I started to notice that some of my friends were musicians and were planning on going to conservatories, that music was their only interest. That's all they loved to do and that's all they wanted to do. And that's not how I was. I liked other things. You know, I liked music, but I also liked writing. I took a writing class, I wrote this essay, and I showed it to my English teacher. She said, you know, you have to take this article and you have to publish it. And you, or you send it to magazines, you know, and, and don't stop until you're your room is plastered with rejection letters. And I think it sparked something in me. And I started to realize that although I loved music, it just wasn't what I wanted to do, but I couldn't just not do it. I didn't know how to just put down the flute. And I was still in orchestra, and I was still trying to straddle these two identities. You know, I had this sort of musician identity, and I had this new person that was emerging, and it was like I was outgrowing my skin. And one day, we had a break during an orchestra rehearsal, and I was like, fuck it. And I bummed a cigarette from a violinist, which is just the cardinal sin, I think, from a woodwind instrument perspective. I like I was just trying to kill the flutist. I guess that put something in motion because eventually I just played less and then not at all. And I put the flute down. When a classical musician puts their instrument down, it's it they put it down, you know, it's they're either playing all the time or not at all. So I started playing not at all and I studied creative writing and I graduated and I moved back to New York and I was happy with my new pursuits, and my new life. And then one day I discovered that that girl that I had met on the bus at the conference, Stephanie, Stephanie Germanata, was actually known to the rest of the world as Lady Gaga, which was crazy. When I found that, I was just like, holy crap. When you grow up like in this kind of atmosphere with talented kids, you figure statistically one of them is going to make it, but you never think that they're going to be the biggest pop star in the universe. So I was, I was happy for her. And then I just started hearing her music everywhere. I mean, it was playing everywhere, literally. On the radio. And in my brain, everywhere, literally. I was at a New Year's party and I heard 
You know, everyone start, started dancing to like Poker Face or something. And all I could think was like, please, please, please let this song be over. Just make it stop. You know, I can't listen to this. This is making me feel like a fa failure. Like change the song, put on Kanye. You know, at least I know that I didn't know him when he was a child. Of course, that was like right around the time when my friends were like, can you play Lady Gaga on piccolo at this show? And I was totally, totally beside myself, like total quarter life crisis. I had to stop it. And I walked like around the block and around the house and just around and around and around going like, why do I feel this craziness, you know, like, do do you want to be a musician? No, I don't want to be a musician. You know, do you, are you jealous of Lady Gaga? I was like, no. Like, I'm I'm happy for this this girl. She she's nice. She's talented. She worked so hard to get where she was. And the second that I had that thought that she worked so hard to get where she was, it just everything came tumbling down. It like echoed in my brain, and I was like, oh my god, I didn't try. I didn't I didn't work. I mean, I of course I practiced, but I didn't I didn't practice. I was so afraid that even if I practiced, even if I worked so hard, even if I was talented and I tried my best, that my best wouldn't be good enough. And I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle the idea, you know, that someone else could get a solo. So I just told myself, that girl got the part because she practices four hours a day. And if I practice four hours a day too, I would be better than she is. I'm more musically talented. And I was able to just kind of cop out. The thing that, about music that was always rubbing me in a sense the wrong way was that I was always playing someone else's music. I could interpret and be artistic to a certain extent, but it always had a limit. It was the way that I felt about my relationship to music, that, that it was almost confining, that there was a point to which I could be myself, and then I couldn't really go beyond that. And the thing about writing is that I can go as far as I want to, that I can create my own narrative, that I'm never interpreting someone else's story, that I'm always just trying to figure out who I am. And it's scary to have that much freedom to make all of those different choices, but at least I know that the art I make is me. On the page it looked nothing. The beginning simple, almost comic. Just a pulse, bassoons, basset horns. Like a rusty squeeze box. <laughs> and then, suddenly, high above it, an oboe. A single note hanging there, unwavering. Until a clarinet took it over. 
sweetened it into a phrase of such delight. Filled with such longing, such unfulfillable longing. It seemed to me that I was hearing a voice of God. The great thing about music is that um, just one record can change your mood. You know, if you're feeling depressed or anything, you can just put one record on and, um, and instantly you're in a different place. I think that this is something that Satan himself put into the music. Let's play it forwards. Another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust. Ow! Another one bites the dust. Hey, hey! Another one bites the Play that for you backwards. It's the next cassette. We'll have to put a new cassette in. And on this next cassette, I want you to hear the secret message. It's over and over and over. It says, It's fun to smoke marijuana. It's fun to smoke marijuana. It's fun to smoke marijuana. You listen to it and tell me if it's not there. Let's play that. message was <laughs> it's fun to smoke marijuana it's fun to smoke marijuana it's fun to smoke marijuana now I'm gonna play that backwards for you once more for those of you that are skeptics This is an instrument called the Clavibox. Couple of long, strange trips in there. This is Ego Plume behind me now. Uh, we heard two parts of DJ Lobster Dust's song, It's Fun to Smoke Dust. We heard Nina Moses, who is a lovely lady and a longtime associate producer of this show uh, with a story we call What I Make Is Me. Our last story today comes from the Risk Live show at UCB in Los Angeles. This is Brian Husky of the Onion News Network and Children's Hospital with a story we call Stand Up So I Can Slam You. So, uh, despite the fact that I presently look like a middle school uh, teacher, um, I, I used... <laughs> I have a mirror. I know what's going on. Um, I used to be uh, actually in a rock band. No, not a rock band. An alternative rock band. <laughs> Yeah, we didn't tune very well. We didn't give a shit. So it was freshman year of college. I put up the obligatory flyer saying bassist seeks guitarist and put all my influences, which included Velvet Underground. Cool. Right on. Right on. Um, 
And uh, we formed a little trio that we called Bicycle Face. <laughs> because we knew that was going to take us to the top. About a year after our forming, uh, we were signed, and I'm putting air quotes for the podcast, signed uh, by a, a local label, Moist Records, which was uh, essentially... Uh, uh, a label started by these two trust fund kids whose business plan was spend all the money we have but not on the bands. And, um, but to us, like being signed was it. Like that was the thing of like, okay, it's on. This is my career. Alternative rock. Let's do this. So the band consisted of myself on bass and bad vocals. My roommate, uh, Chris uh, Longworth, my college roommate, who taught himself to play drums uh, on a set of trash cans and a hubcap. Um, and that was a great novelty act for the first couple of acts, but it sounded like shit, so we kind of abandoned that. And then our guitarist, who was Mitchell McGirt. Mitchell McGirt had the most regrettable mullet in history. He had a thick Eastern North Carolina, which is where I'm from, North Carolina accent. Yeah, word up, Jesse Helms, racism. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and he had this weird habit of wearing kind of preppy shorts that were way too short, like gay pride parade short. Uh, but he was very heter heterosexual, like almost too much so. Um, so we formed our little trio, and we sort of played around and, and uh, you know, built up a following in the triad. Uh, and then finally, we, one time we got a, a big headlining gig in Wilmington at Jacob's Run. Ow. This place was fucking awesome because I had a balcony and everything. <laughs> Woo, shit. Kick-ass sound system. And so we're very excited about that, of course. So we go down there, we sound check, and then afterwards... A bunch of Mitch's redneck buddies from high school show up, and they are in local bands like Smell It and, uh, and Rural Swine, and they play songs like PBR and Snap That Bra Strap. So these were the dudes he was hanging out with, and they go off with Mitch, uh, and Chris and I just hang out, have some dinner, and we come back, and we're ready to do the show. And then Mitch doesn't come back. Um... And it gets closer to the showtime, and Mitch still doesn't come back. Um, and then it's past showtime, and the, the owner of the club is like, I think I'm going to kick you guys out because this is uh, bullshit. And then Mitch shows up. It's very rock and roll, very dramatic. It just shows up like, let's do this. And uh, there's no time for us to be mad, so we just go on stage. Pretty good crowd, 125, maybe maybe 127. I don't know. Um, <laughs> And we launch in the first song. It goes pretty well. Not great, but uh, we pick up steam. Then we go into the next song immediately, which never happens. Uh, Mitch had a habit of slowing the momentum of the show down by talking between every song. Um, but this time, the rock gods were s smiling on us, and we just plowed right into the next song, playing along. And then towards the end of the song, he gets a little sloppy. And we end the song... And then he goes to announce the next song. And I don't know what it's like to see someone get a horse tranquilizer shot in their neck and then see that physical effect happen to them. But that is what I imagine it is like when I saw Mitch. He just went... <laughs> he tried to say, the next song we're going to play is Speck of Dust. He went... Dust. <laughs> 
And and he his his motor functions just shit the bed. He just was like everything went wrong and and I looked at Chris and I was like, is he having a stroke? What's going on? And then we look out of the audience and there's this little gaggle of, of redneck buddies all holding up half-empty whiskey bottles. Like, woo We did it! We got your guitars fucking drunk, dude! And they didn't get them drunk. They got them like whiskey shit face drunk, which has all sorts of variations between like dementia and insanity <laughs> and you know, visions of incest and just craziness. Um, and so it, I'm like, great, he's totally drunk and we have to do this show. And then he just starts playing the song. And so we jump in with him, start to play the song. It's going pretty well. We're about a third of the song into it. And then he's like, nope, you know what? Time to tune the guitar. So stops the song and does what he thinks is tuning the guitar, but really it's just, it's sort you ever seen a guy with the heroin nods? You know, and like a guy is on heroin and they're trying to pick something up off the ground and it just, just will never happen. <laughs> just not gonna work. He's trying to do that with his guitar and he's basically just untuning all of it. So the guitar's just going and Mitch also had a habit of never fixing his equipment, so his distortion pedal would randomly decide to distort. So the didn't went to and it sounded like a dragon getting raped by Satan. And the the it just and I just was standing there, and that would have been those moments where it would have been really cool if I had just been like, "Fuck this!" Throw my bass on the ground, walked off. But I think I thought he was going to get sober at some point during the show. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm going to make a go of it. Let's see how this pans out. So for the next hour and a half, we attempted to play about 20 songs. We played four. Mitch played songs we didn't know. Mitch played songs he didn't know. Mitch played songs that didn't exist. He would have long, drunken, babbling banter with the crowd, which is basically like finding a woman and just going, I want to get them tits. I want to get some of that stinky snapper tonight. Uh, and he, he enjoyed calling the sound man sizzle chest because the jerky boys were very popular back then. Um... And then it all culminated into the, the logical conclusion for a rock show like this by uh, him dropping his pants and mooning the audience. But because he was in a heroin nod state of drunkenness, it was a brown eye showcase that just would not end. As he struggled, and I don't know why he had to, he had to like completely turn his whole body around to grab his shorts. So then it was just like, right here, that's where you should throw your darts. Uh, so, this, so the club owner just turned the lights on. The whole show just kind of fizzled out. And we see everyone in the club just pressed up against the bar at the back of the room as though it was a depressing tsunami. It just pushed them back there, and they were just like, ah. So afterwards, I wanted to um, express my anger, my frustration, because I'm an artist and I don't want my art compromised. 
And one of the least satisfying people that you can get mad at is a drunk who is drunk because they don't know what's going on. They think that they tune their guitar well. So I, I one of the few times in my life that I got physical, I like <laughs> was in the back alley with, with Mitch and I like slammed him up against the wall. And I was like, you don't fucking do that during the show. But Mitch is much bigger than me and he was drunk. So it turned into me trying to repeatedly slam him against the wall and then just kind of trying to hold him up a little bit. And then like his leg slips. I was like, no, you stand up so I can slam you. And then he just kind of drooped to the, f to the ground. And then I was like, well, fuck you. And later on, we went to a house party at Smellett's. Um, <laughs> smell its place and we sat in the, the car for a while Chris and I were mad and we were complaining about how unprofessional he was and we're like well, you know what let's just go in there because I mean everybody knows that was a stupid show and you know it's going to be hard but that's fine so we go in there and everybody's like dude that was awesome that was the best show I've ever seen in my life that kicked ass man and I couldn't accept their accolades because I was like no you don't understand but I should have just been like you're right that was insane that was great uh, but I held this grudge the whole night and just had a terrible night. And Mitch, who essentially ruined the show, I, I looked around for him. I couldn't find him anywhere. I, was, I asked one of the guys, like, where's Mitch? And he's like, oh, he's in the back getting some stinky snapper. <laughs> Woo! Rock and roll! And then I found Jesus. <laughs> Well, that about wraps it up for us today, folks. This is uh, Whoop Whoop by Shara. We're going to go out with a song by the hilarious Mike Furman. This is Clear the Floor. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk. Yeah. You ready to move? <laughs> I am too. Here we go. Come on. Come on. Gonna get your body rocking. Gonna make you, make you move with this. Move. Can I be honest? Yeah. I'm not too crazy about this beat right here Do you think that we could just start over? Yeah, I'm giving up on this beat The snare comes in way too soon And the bass ain't pumping No, the bass ain't right at all I'm giving up on this beat It just didn't come together No one will be jumping When they play this at the club No, I'm just not feeling it I'm just not feeling it No, I'm Um, 
Turning it off and turning it back on. Nope, still sounds bad. I'm still. 